This past June, I had the uh, great good fortune to be one of about 200 primarily Western Buddhist teachers who all met together for approximately a week in California at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center. And we all had the great good fortune to have the Dalai Lama with us for approximately a day and a half. As part of our group of teachers exploring teaching in the West, and primarily teaching Western students. One of the things the Dalai Lama touched on was came out of a question that he's often asked, that he spoke about, what is Buddhism? And he, he talked about it a little bit quite candidly. He talked about it being a certain kind of mental training, a certain kind of mental training to eliminate all kinds of what he called negative or afflictive emotions. And he went on to say to eliminate all traces of negative or afflictive emotions, to completely purify afflictive emotion. He said this is a definition of realization, what we might think of as the mind, the heart of the arahant. After uh, this discussion with him, we met in small groups at some point after this, and one of the people in my small group said, have you ever met anybody like that? Do you believe that's really possible? He was quite skeptical, actually. But the the Dalai Lama uh, quite truly believes this is possible. Speaking from that place, you could feel it when he talked. And so we make an effort, a physical effort, a mental effort. We practice. We practice towards the purification of our heart, of our mind. We explore, we investigate through our practice. We study also. And we might get some feeling, some touch of the possibility of this purity, this happiness, this freedom. Through our practice, as we understand this mind, this body, more and more clearly, more deeply, certain kinds of states of mind increase and others decrease. This evening I'd like to talk about emotional states transformation or purification of what could be called negative or afflictive or strong emotions. 
And this is from uh, a text that I found years ago. I actually don't know what the name of the book is. It's no longer in print. Um, But I'd like to share it with you. It talks about emotions as the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity can take root and blossom. The nourishing mud. Maybe a different way to think about it. This is from the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus, don't grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but do grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. (laughs) The poisons, the anguish, confusion of self-centered existence from this perspective are transformed into nectar, or Buddha wisdoms, we could call them. When the thread of self is pulled out, when self-centeredness is no longer our orientation, relationship to experience, strong emotions are what we could say, we could say they're digested into wisdom. Without self-grasping, Pulling out the thread of self, the energies of strong emotions transform. They're digested into wisdom energy. This is from Nisargadatta Maharaj. A student asked him, what is the real cause of suffering? And his answer was, self-identification with the limited Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. It's as though most of us have skeletons in the closet, we could say. The old and sometimes seemingly brand new angers, fears, judgments, sadnesses, strong desires, confusions, pains, etc. From our present life experiences, and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experience. Some of these we may have looked at. Some of them we might have hidden away somewhere. In our practice, in meditation, we open to whatever's present, whatever's here, whatever is arising, including 
things that may have been tucked away, these so-called skeletons in the closet, when they appear. There maybe are some people who seem to be able to find a true contentment, a deep happiness, without ever letting out the skeletons. Maybe. And that's fine for them. But for most of us, that's really not how it goes. Most of us need to discover these hidden away things in order to find a real true depth of happiness, an ease of being in our life. Or we continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we can be happy, but never really truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet go up into the attic or down into the basement and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or what we may have judged as unacceptable or what we may have buried away somewhere. Practice is a very powerful tool, very powerful tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence. To be able to see clearly. With meditation, we learn to open to our experience from the heart of kindness, from the heart, mind of compassion for ourselves. We open to our experience from the deepest spaciousness, the deepest center of our being, and learn to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached. Just what's right here, right here, right now. And realize, begin to realize that it really doesn't have to control us. We learn to offer, to open to what could be called a choiceless awareness, which means being present with all of the arisings of mind, of heart, of body, without getting caught, without getting lost in the content. We practice and learn a moment-to-moment investigation of mind, heart, body. Through this process of cultivating a calm, focused, mindful awareness, which allows us to experience sensations, emotions, thoughts, and consciousness itself with a greater balance and clarity. With this kind of compassionate, non-judgmental, spacious awareness, we can realize that anger, fear, sadness, judgment, strong desires, confusion, really 
have no more control over us. We don't need to analyze these experiences. We don't need to fix it. Things are just as they are. In a sense, we leave everything as it is. Our rooms or our attic or our basement with all of the boxes opened, the skeletons uncovered. We can be present in this moment of our life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 or 20 years ago or just a few moments ago, without giving the past continued power over us. This is truly our possibility in practice. And as I'm sure you well know by now, it's not a linear process. As we continue to see more and more clearly, we also continue cultivating this heart of kindness, this heart of compassion. It's the whole, the whole seamless circle of a heartful spaciousness that allows this clear depth of the truth to be seen. And sometimes there's fear, there's resistance to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry. It's created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. It can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with a great gentleness, a kindness, and a very deep patience for and with ourselves. And through this process of opening and letting go or relinquishing our old habits of anguish, our old habits of confusion, our habitual places of suffering. This is from Nisargadatta again. Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. The Buddha, in his first Dharma discourse, after he was enlightened, said something that's quite famous at this point. I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. I think that the most subtle and yet probably the most deeply pervasive suffering in this life is that which is inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, 
comes into, the, into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything in this world, everything in this universe is contingent. Everything is dependent, interdependent. Nothing, no thing arises or originates totally separately from anything else. Because of this, that. Because of that, this. Everything is relative, related. Everything is in relationship, in an infinitude of relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, strong desires, judgments, sadness, etc. And yet so often we take the opposite of this truth to be the way of things, the reality of things. Taking our experience, taking things to be as though they are solidly in place, as though they're permanent. Taking our experiences and things to be separate, to be separate, solid happenings, separate, solid forms in and of themselves, which always, always, eventually create suffering for us and others. We hold on to the past. We project into the future. And we solidify both. And yet this life just keeps on going, keeps on happening keeps rolling on. An amazing and fortunate thing about suffering itself is that it too is conditional. Totally, it's a totally contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Where I live up in the mountains in New Mexico, during the monsoon season, what we call monsoon season, we have um, often appearing huge arches of rainbows, sometimes double rainbows. Rainbows are amazing things. They appear because of particular specific conditions coming together. There's moisture in the air, just the right amount of it. The angle of the light is just right. And of course, one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction to see this appearing rainbow. And it changes very quickly. Moments, seconds. Everything in life, including ourself, all of our experiences of body, of mind, are really like a rainbow. Really merely a changing set of conditions that are totally interrelated, totally contingent, and empty in and of themselves. It's 
very obvious with rainbows. But not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, we could say. The suffering of grasping on, holding on tightly, tightly holding to some appearing thing or experience, state of mind, any phenomena, and solidifying it and identifying it as me, as mine, as who I think I am, thinking of things, experiences, phenomena as being alone, all by itself, real, unchanging entity, be it material objects, be it an idea, an opinion, a belief, an emotional state, a bodily experience, thinking of any of these things as permanent and unchanging and identifying any of these as me, as mine, as I, in the process of our life experience, in the process of our practice, will inevitably lead to suffering, to anguish, to confusion. The way of things, the nature of life, the natural laws, the unfolding of life will certainly get in the way and frustrate our effort to try to hold on, to try to solidify this and that. Liberation Freedom from suffering isn't based on anything imaginary, not based on anything pretended or hoped for or wished for, not based on anything philosophized about or avoided or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. Practice gives us this amazingly powerful tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental presence to see clearly, to open the closet and look in the boxes, to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and buried away, these skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around unconsciously, unwittingly, for maybe a very long time. We can't be free from something that we ignore, something that we don't see. In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance isn't bliss. (laughs) We've heard that. Ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is simply ignorance. Bliss is bliss. With ignorance providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But, fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only impermanent, conditioned, contingent states of suffering, not our true nature, just two of the hues of the many-hued rainbow, we could say. This is a piece um, 
<clears throat> by Stephen Mitchell, his version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rocks sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain, forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. Looming is always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. So in the spirit of stepping aside, stepping aside and going home, grounded in wisdom, grounded in compassion, I'd like to uh, explore with you some of the emotional states of mind based in strong desire and aversion, or what are sometimes spoken of as based in hope, and fear. The strong energies of mind and body that can sometimes be quite difficult for us. Fear, anger. It can color, it can take over our whole entire experience. Sometimes when we're caught in these energies, it feels like nothing's right, nobody's right, including ourselves. When we're swept away in these states of mind, we often feel quite restless in our body, quite restless in the mind. And it might be very difficult, or maybe seemingly impossible, to become focused, to become concentrated, to mindfully explore the experience of the present moment with the spirit of exploration, the spirit of discovery. In order to practice, to understand, we do need to be able to come very close to our experience with this spirit of investigation and exploration without pushing it away, without pulling away from it, without desiring our experience to be different than it is in the moment. So it's really important to learn to work with these states of mind, states of body, when they're present in our field of experience. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling hot spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. If we suppress our experience or we judge it, we repress it, difficult emotional energies, it really doesn't help, doesn't work very well. They pop up again 
It also deadens and blocks our sensitivities. It closes down our awareness. It keeps the possibility of purification from happening, the possibility of transformation. It keeps it at bay, we could say. And of course, if we act out our difficult emotions, what we're doing is strengthening them. We're reinforcing our habit patterns, our particular habit patterns around them. It's like we water and fertilize the seeds of our habit patterns. And also, of course, we can cause trouble. We can cause a lot of suffering both to ourselves and to others when we act out of great anger or fear. Within this amazing and great tool of practice, the most direct way to work with these sometimes very difficult strong states, these strong energies of mind, is of course to be mindful of them. To at times make them the object of our mindful attention when they arise. Joseph spoke about this the other night and said that these energies can become another aspect of our mindful attention when they arise. These powerful energies can fuel the energy of our practice, a deepening mindfulness. Working with these forces can actually become a source of insight, a source of energy. We can learn to directly observe anger, fear, sadness, desire, jealousy, and begin to understand through our own direct experience how they work, what their pattern is, how they operate in this body, how they operate in this mind. Emotional states are clearly reflected in the body as various sensations. With the intimacy of mindful awareness, we can begin to know the particular textures, the particular flavors of anger itself. We can directly experience experience the changing, ephemeral, contingent, and selfless nature of any of these strong emotional states with direct mindful attention into them. We can actually learn to experience the, even the extremes of these energies without getting caught up or swept away or overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. I had a student once who, whose life was primarily fueled by the energy of anger. She was very attached, very identified with her anger. And in fact, she would 
talked to me about how much she liked her anger. She felt, she said she felt so strong and so powerful with this anger energy. But unfortunately, she was quite unhappy. <laughs> because she was like a porcupine. People would begin to get close and then feel the sharp burn of her anger and move away. So she was a very lonely person and yet so identified with herself as an angry person and so afraid that, if, that she would lose herself, lose her energy, lose her power, lose who she thought she was and how she needed to be in the world, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. The degree with which we hold on or try to cling on to our experience, tightly grasping it, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. The truth of the matter is that the strong energy that's present in strong emotional states, the energy itself doesn't disappear. We don't lose it. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with that non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our very own personal advantages such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or recognition, with a clear, non-self-absorbed and yet interested mindful attention for even just a moment or two, therein lies the possibility of the transformation, at least for that moment or two, of the strong energies of fear, clinging, desire, anger, sadness. I'd like to take a few moments to look at greed, strong desire, clinging, attachment. These states of mind that quite often, I think for many of us, define what we think we need in order to be at ease, in order to be contented in our life. We often, I think quite often, live our life projecting our hopes, projecting our dreams of some kind of happiness, some kind of fulfillment, some kind of permanent ease of well-being onto some particular object or some kind of a future or some way that we want to become, how we want to be related to or not related to, or how we want to be seen or not seen. This is a prayer that uh, someone sent me. Um, It's a prayer of Mother Teresa's. And uh, I'll read it just the way I got it. You might translate it word or two, but this is the way it came to me. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, 
from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. Nothing much left out there. (laughs) I shared this with a friend and he said to me, oh my God, have I got a lot to do, a lot of work to do. And and yes, we do. And I found it quite inspiring when I read this. Um, A practice, a very deep practice. Strong desire in the mind is, in the classical teachings, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We can't see the bottom anymore. Our vision is blurred, obscured. The mind, the heart that is clouded when we're caught in the energies of clinging, caught in the energies of attachment. If we're unaware of this and we blindly, unconsciously follow our desires, and of course desire is a natural human experience, it's certainly a part of what got you here. But if we blindly, unconsciously follow our desires, it's possible and maybe quite likely that we might along the way hurt somebody, hurt ourselves. We also can tend to get quite dependent on having certain objects of our desire stay the same. And in this dependency we might live at least a good part of our life in hope, hoping that these objects or this object remains the same. We might spend a lot of our time pursuing or trying to recreate the object because it keeps changing. We'll keep changing. You might have noticed that in your practice from a particular sitting that you found quite wonderful and tried to get back to or recreate. Sometimes we think that the satisfaction of any particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it can't. That it can't possibly give us. I think a really good question to ask ourselves every now and then is, how driven am I by my desires? How driven am I? by my desires. A simple example, personal example, actually. Sometimes we're very clearly and simply present with pleasant experience in the moment, in the moment of a pleasant experience. And sometimes we suffer in relationship to pleasant experience. I was teaching a meditation retreat a number of years ago at a 
center in New Mexico, in northern New Mexico, that <clears throat> has some of the most beautiful flower gardens that I've ever been around. I happen to like flowers quite a bit, and I like the smell of flowers quite a bit. So I was walking by one of the gardens, leaned down to smell the flower. Actually, the, the flower called me. I was walking along and smelled it and followed my nose and ended up at this particular flower. Spent a moment or two taking in the smell, breathing it in. Found myself leaning into the experience, this pleasant experience, kind of grasping towards it, leaning into it, and started to feel a kind of tension, subtle, although sometimes it's not so subtle, tension, this tension of yearning, this grasping feeling, wanting it to um, stay, wanting me to stay there with it. But I had other things to do. I had to leave. So I tore myself away from this wonderful smelling experience and found myself kind of still there, back there, thinking about it, wanting it back, not happy to be going to do what I had to do and to go where I needed to go. Tension. A kind of stress, body-mind stress. Sometimes we mistakenly perceive this tension as pleasant. It happens really quickly in relation to pleasant experience. And it's quite a pervasive and deep habit for most of us. Unless we're really mindfully present, we're really not clear what's actually happening in our relationship to experience. So the experience of the sweetness of the flower smell is already over. And we might still be grasping onto it the memory of it, clinging to it, wanting it back or wanting it again or wanting more of it, imagining it, fantasizing about it. What just a moment ago was pleasantness is no longer pleasant. We're caught in the grip, our own habitual grip of the wanting mind as we actually begin to see, to experience attachment, grasping, we find out that we're experiencing a kind of tension, a kind of stress, a burning. There's frustration, confusion, delusion sometimes that this yearning, this state of desire, this attachment feels good. Our culture, our songs, for instance, tell us that all the time. We're well conditioned to believe that until we begin to see clearly how prevalent, how pervasive is this in your life? In an early sutta, the Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. 
What is heard is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he went on like this through all of the six sense doors. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. In English we have the expressions burning anger, burning with desire. I'd like to share a piece of uh, something, a book that was written by Jacques Lucian called Finding Light in the Darkness. It's about a, it's an autobiographical book and it's um, about Jacques, and he was blind. He became blind when he was eight years old. This is a little piece of his experience after he was blind, and he was still a young boy. The seeing eye was in me. Still, there were times when the light faded almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock. If I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way, the way they say bats do. When the loss of my eyes had not accomplished, what the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up and turned turtle, muttered like crazy men and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be the first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once, a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal, which taught me how to live. The Buddha's teaching and practice practices are about finding the place of coolness. The coolness based in deep understanding and wisdom. The place of freedom from burning. The end 
of the restless movement of constant wanting, constant craving, of constant not wanting, of constant resistance. The coolness in what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is smelled is just the smelled. Mindfulness, I sometimes think of mindfulness as being like magic, but not like the magician's magic that's all done with or that creates illusion and then pulls us into this delusion. The magic of mindfulness takes us through the illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. The transformation of what can be called the afflictive emotions. Anger, without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into a mirror-like wisdom from which appropriate compassionate action springs. Wanting, strong desire, without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clear, discriminating awareness. Arrogance, self-recrimination, both in the Buddhist teachings called conceit, both of these energies based in fear, both of these energies keeping us bound and caught, without the self, no self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of equality. Jealousy, without the contraction of self-centeredness, digests as it's digested, can transform into what is sometimes called all-accomplishing wisdom, just simply doing what needs to be done now. Sadness without the self, with no self-grasping, digests or transforms into great compassion. And ignorance transforms into the boundless, we could say panoramic wisdom of emptiness, of spaciousness, resting in the selfless nature of all phenomena. This spaciousness that sees clearly, that knows, that holds everything but doesn't hold on to anything. Seeing clearly, being so present in the moment without grasping on to the experiences of the moment. It's really about letting the great unwinding, the great undoing of what I like to call our 
karmic predicaments, the contingent, conditioned filters through which we suffer, letting the unwinding begin. It's about resting in the depth of silence, resting in the boundless, deep spaciousness, and paying attention, really paying attention, an extraordinary kind of attention in the midst of letting life live through us. This is a poem by Wendell Berry called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down with where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the place of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The times in practice when we experience a stillness and a peacefulness are really wonderful gifts that inspire us and help us to keep going along our path. We sometimes sit so still in a deep and peaceful place. What we call and experience as difficult sittings can often be places of very deep learning. It's important to be here for both. Our practice, Vipassana practice, is balanced in the midst of all that we experience with a growing and deepening awareness of the truth of who we are, our true nature, which isn't something that we need to strive or strive for or try to manifest. But it's something, or we could say nothing, that just is, that's always available, present, right now, in this moment. This is a poem by Roger Keyes called Hokusai Says. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. 
He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. Sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.